continuing the series that I started just before Christmas this year uh, about making it. And, you know, it has its own definitions. It has its own sort of intertwined, you know, story for each individual person that we would think has either made it or they're trying to make it. I get asked a lot of questions about making it. I don't have all the answers, but I wanted to bring some people on that I would feel have made it they may feel that they still got some work to do by definition. Everyone has their own. And I thought I'd kick it off this year with a good friend of mine. Great guy. Amazing story. My friend, Craig gas. How are you, sir? Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming. Doing good, brother. How are you? I'm good, man. It's been a couple of, a uh, couple of months since we uh, hung out in little New York uh, city there, that little comedy club there that, oh, yeah. uh, at the comic strip there. It was a great night. It was awesome. Good to see uh, some New York comedy. I, a weird thing for me is, is it was on September 11th and that was just, yep. you know, I had a day off in New York and I'm like, I got to, well, I was in Secaucus actually. I don't know if you've ever done a gig over in Secaucus, but, but I, I was in Secaucus staying and I'm like, I got to come to New York city and spend the day on September 11th hanging out. Turns out you were there doing what you do best, which is, uh, making people laugh and uh, he invited me down to the show and I appreciate that. And it was great to actually get to the very famous comic strip and, uh, and see you do your thing. So thanks again for that. And great to see you again, man. So thanks for coming on. Yeah. That club is so legendary. It's where Eddie Murphy broke huge in the eighties. Um, uh, Jerry Seinfeld just did his last Netflix special there. Adam Sandler just did his last Netflix special there because they both got their start at the comic strip and, uh, that picture you just showed of uh, us sitting at the booth, if, if you were to look at the wall, it's just, it's such a crazy wall of fame of every great comedian. Yeah. Um, and uh, I can tell it's George Wallace right there with the priest robe on. Yeah. Uh, who else? I don't know. My eyesight isn't good without my glasses. <laughs> There's so, so um, many people there, but you can see the pictures on the wall. You've actually, and, and your promo pic that we used for this thing, uh, is that there as well? That picture was taken at the comedy store, and okay. shit, I'm miss, I'm forgetting the name. There's a there's a great photographer, and I'm oh man, this is gonna kill me. It'll probably come to me after we get off the the line here. But there's a great comedian who does a series of portraits of comedians in that hallway mm. at the comedy store that uh, is featured now when you walk into the entrance of the main room, and that's um, one of the pictures being featured in there when you walk in. Yeah, man, it's a trip. This this topic, making it, the definition of making it is something that I talk about all the time. So it's it's something I'm pretty well versed in. And and there's also 
uh, a funny story. When I first started doing stand-up, it was 1993 in Seattle at this uh, place called the Comedy Underground. And I'd been doing stand-up for about a year there, um, at least three or four nights a week, getting up on stage and trying to figure out how to do it. And I was there for about a year when the bartender late at night at the club that's above the Comedy Underground, it was called Swanee's. Uh, I'm putting in a lot of names for what I'm about to say, which is bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be implicating a lot of people here. But um, I remember the bartender said, uh, he goes, Greg, he goes, come here, I need you to help me move some kegs. And I go, what? And I'm, I'm drunk. And he's like, I need you to help me move some kegs. And I go, find someone else to help me move some kegs. He goes, Craig, I need you to help me move some kegs. It's one o'clock in the morning. I'm, I'm drunk. I'm in a good mood. And I'm like, I don't want to move any kegs. And he's like, Craig, help me move some kegs right now. And I was like, fuck. I, I had just done what I thought was a pretty good set that night. And I'm just trying to enjoy some beers. And I'm like, all right. And he walks me back into the freezer where he has like a CD with lines of coke chopped up on top of it and right. he, goes, he goes you do this right and my first thought in that moment was oh, i made it that was my first thought <laughs> I made it like uh, the the fucking employees are offering me cocaine like i just thought oh this my god it. i made it like i'm i'm in a secret world now where i now have access to cocaine and then uh come to find out this <laughs> a lot of cocaine in that club and I just didn't notice it. But uh, it's funny that my priorities at the time were like, oh my God, the staff is letting me in on their private parties. I've made it. But um, but the definition of making it is, uh, um, you know, anyone who... Uh, gets free cocaine. Gets free <laughs> and follows their passion. That's right. And it's a crazy thing how many people I've met over the years who uh, uh, they fall in love with music, they fall in love with comedy, whatever, and then they work their way through following their path. And then they might find they have a real skill at something that doesn't put them right where they want it to be, but it puts them close to, to the world they want to be a part of. And they have a real skill for this. And then, you know, there's, I mean, so many tour and and photographers and uh, you know guitar techs and um, management people I've met over the years who uh, are in love with music and then ended up finding their way um, into the industry. You know, I think of Susan Silver is as a great example of that Susan Silver is this yeah. wonderful woman in Seattle who. Uh, was big on the music scene. She loved music and was uh, in the clubs in Seattle in the 80s and and loved putting together like very eclectic uh, nights of music. And when I say eclectic, I, she said that, I remember her telling me that she would get like uh, a punk band followed by a church choir, followed by uh, a jazz band, but whatever. It was just, it was just, a display of music of, of for this passion for all um, uh, examples of expression. And uh, so many bands wanted her to manage them and uh, she just didn't want to do it. 
And then she finally decided to manage a couple of bands. Was, uh, yeah. her, her boyfriend was in a band called Soundgarden. Yeah. And this, this kid, Jerry, who was like her little brother, had a band called Alice in Chains. And she yeah. about this other little band called Pearl Jam. Those are the only three <laughs> bands she decided to help out and manage. And, I thought uh, I put this on for you today, the Alice in Chains hoodie. But, yeah. Oh, yeah. I finally met her. I met her a couple of years ago, finally, on that Corn and Alice in Chains tour where I saw See, Craig and I have a habit of running into each other in very random places. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't seen you in a few years, and then and then you're backstage at New York uh, at the at Montauk there at the amphitheater yeah. on that show, and then I had met uh, Susan on that tour because she was working with Allison Chains, <clears throat> so that was cool, and she was fantastic and great. So <clears throat> yeah, he's an funny. amazing human being. But yeah, there's um, but um, from your point of view, what have you? Where has the conversation gone from your point of view in covering this topic? Well. I, the general consensus and everyone is very modest, which, you know, is to be expected. You know, you'd, people would be like, oh, no, I haven't made it. And they've, you know, they've run concerts all around the world. Our buddy Chad Guy was on a couple of weeks ago and, you know, he just he, he's with Kiss all year and doing stuff, as you know. And it's like for someone in production, like what I do for a living or someone that's, you know, running concerts, you know, every, there's there's a there's a there's an end game. Like there's the Beatles and there's like. You know, uh, McCartney, there's Kiss, there's the, these big, the Eagles, there's these big giant bands that we, you know, if you get on the radar or you you work with them, you would feel like you're making it or something. And especially taking a tour like Kiss around the world, the last tour, you would think that Chad had felt that he made it. But, you know, he he's still searching. He's still going after it. And so the general consensus on, on this topic is that people... Uh, are being modest and saying that they haven't. And we'll get into that with you in a minute. But I I, I feel like that's going to be a common theme. And I think that's okay. If every single guest is modest and says, I'm still trying to make it, but they've backed it up with like a substantial amount of things, then it's it's still fine. I mean, the journey never ends. As I said, the bottom or the top of one level is the bottom of the next for almost every single profession. So I do want to ask you about that when it comes to comedy. Um, But for everyone listening at home, that's not familiar with your story. You've got an incredible story. I know you told it a billion times. So if you want to, if you can give me the Coles notes version, so you're not sick of telling it on this show, I would love for you to fill people in on, on how that, you know, your history came together for a minute before we dive into comedy you know and my my questions for you on that side i'm a stand-up comedian who's mostly known for doing voices and i've always been able to do any voice that i hear because of how i grew up my entire family is deaf and um growing up in a deaf family i couldn't learn how to talk for my family i learned how to talk by copying all the voices i heard on tv so i've always been able to mimic any kind of voice that i hear which led me into radio, which led me to Howard Stern. Um, And then Howard Stern led me to acting roles on a bunch of TV shows. Um, And uh, because of Howard Stern, I've been paying my bills and my mom's bills for the last 20 years, 21 years, 22 years now. And... um, and the strange thing just happened recently where I, I just returned to the Howard Stern show a couple months ago and I'm uh, doing more voice work on the show and creating new content. And that's the, uh, that's the unbelievably short version. There's a lot of cool shit that happened in between. There's tons. I mean, your story is endless. You can, you can check out 
Craig's stuff on, on just the online stuff alone. I, I love, uh, I was first introduced to you on this. I first saw you on this, on the Gene Simmons roast nice. on comedy central. So that's where I had, had saw you do this thing and it was incredible. Um, I have an interesting question for you on comedy. Mm-hmm. So I've read and I, and I like to study a bit on comedians. I'm a big Seinfeld fan, but I'm a big, uh, I'm a big uh, standup comedian fan in general. And it seems like getting the laugh is the medicine, but the journey to getting the laugh is also, you know, the big reward for you guys. Cause you're, you're clubbing every night and you're doing stuff every night and all the rest of it. So making Gene Simmons laugh, for instance, or making Howard Stern laugh, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago, you did an incredible Sam Kinison bit and I, you had Howard laughing. And I was like, that, to me as a comedian, you know, if you can make Chris Rock laugh, together if you can make your friends laugh your peers laugh and they think you're funny part one of making it is that does that satisfy you or do you want more of course man there's all these crazy little things that happen along the way where you're like holy shit did that fucking happen i mean you know like i just lean so far into comedy because i'm so head over heels in love with stand-up comedy to this day that I just like dropped everything and just kept running towards it and just kept doing it like four or five nights a week. And, and I was just, I just wanted to marinate in it. I, I even found out a long time ago that it was like next to impossible to get work if you're dirty on stage. And one of the best things that ever happened to me is I gave up hope on making money. Like, all right, well, I guess I'll be one of those comedians who doesn't make any money. I'll just, you know, I'm, I'll, but I love it. I love being around it. So I was doing it for the love of it for years and years and years and years. And then when Howard put me on his show, I had so much experience at that point that it just went, but like, I had no idea how big it was at the time. My only goal when I'm in a studio is to make those three, four, five people in the studio laugh. Right. And you don't think anybody's listening and, uh, but you hear feedback about it, and especially at your shows. Like, oh, man, that was so great on Wednesday morning when you said this and that. And it's like, oh, okay, you heard that. Fuck, that's cool. But with Howard, I would get text messages from all over the country and from people in the industry, from, you know, hey, so-and-so's a fan of yours. And I was like, you're kidding. It's like, oh, well, they, they're a big Howard Stern fan. So I, I kind of got trapped in that net. of, uh, And it's happening again with Howard getting back on the air with him. I'm starting to get the same kind of feedback from people and starting to get the same kind of, uh, Hey, are you available to audition for this or that? It's, it's already starting to happen again. Um, but yeah, along the way, when you have those little moments, like, uh, Carla Bo, who is one of the greatest, funniest comedians that ever lived, unfortunately just passed away, uh, less than a year ago. Um, he told me an amazing story about, being at the comedy store in the early eighties and that he had done a few things with Richard Pryor and Richard Pryor showed up at the comedy store. And, um, when he pulled up all the comedians just kind of like stood in awe of him walking from the parking lot into the comedy store and they all just stared at him and, and Richard just kind of, kind of looked and kind of nodded at people. And then he saw Carl and he goes, Oh, Hey Carl, how's it going? And Carl immediately went to the payphone at the comedy <laughs> store, called his dad in Texas and said, dad, Richard Pryor knows who I am. And <laughs> I had the same thing. Ha- when he told me the story, I was like, dude, literally within the last year I was at, 
uh, a club in New York. Chris Rock came in and then he was, um, he did a set and then he was hanging out with uh, a couple of his comedian friends at a table. And I kept walking by the table, just casual, like, like just trying to like, see if anybody would like want to maybe stop and talk to me or something. And a comedian friend of mine, Godfrey was sitting at the table with him. And Godfrey goes, yo, Craig Gass, what's happening, man? He goes, Chris, you know, Craig Gass. And Chris Rock goes, shit. Yeah. Everybody knows who Craig Gass is. And I was like, and I ran outside. I got on my <laughs> and I called my ex that I was dating at the time. And I was like, babe, Chris Rock knows who I am. I literally had the same conversation, you know, 25 years later with somebody that, so it's like you get into it cause you love it. Mm-hmm. And then along the way, there's just, I'm, I'm always telling people who want to do stand up comedy. If you love it, don't worry about money. Cause you won't make any, you yeah. will not make any money for a long time. You have to do it because you love it. And if you love it, Oh, your life is going to become just the experiences alone are going to be an embarrassment of riches. Just the, I can I can see that just from like you know okay so the night that I was in New York with you or that you invited me out to the show again thank you but when you invited me to this place to see it I think Michael Rappaport was on there you'd made a, a few comments about how you were making your way through the city and then you were following you know or Michael was following you or whatever and you guys were doing four sets a night and I you know I study up on on stand up because I just love it so much and everyone's doing the same it amazes me. Uh, when Jerry Seinfeld, for instance, has to go and work out material in a room or something, but I, I totally understand it. Um, once it's in you, right? You got to go, got to go, got to go, got to go, because you're going to test it out, test it out, test it out. Um, now, there's this whole thing about burning your your you know burning your material, starting fresh, you know, and and working towards the special and all the rest of it. So you wrote for Saturday Night Live. You were on Howard and and are on Howard Stern. Um, but is there a spot there uh, that you as a comedian are working towards? Uh, somebody, I heard a quote, and it might even have been from you uh, at one point that it said all the comedian, every comedian's working towards either a special or getting on TV or something. I think we had discussed it maybe when we were in private because you'd, you'd been up here and, and hung out in a bit. And, and he said a lot of comedians just work towards getting on TV, getting that sitcom or getting towards something. So is there, as a stand-up comedian, are you, your first mission is to make people laugh Second, I guess, would be to make a living at doing it. But is there sort of like something that you look at and go, I need to get to here first? What's that sort of first look for a comedian? Well, it's, it's defined differently by every comedian. Um, I definitely have a unique definition of it. And I want to clarify, too, writing for SNL, I was a contributing writer Sure. to weekend update. I wasn't a staff writer. I was, I was um, a contributing writer when Colin Quinn was doing Weekend Update. I just hit him up one night at the show. There was a, a guy who was in the cue card department who was, um, who was a supporter of mine and said, hey, do you ever, if you ever want to come to SNL, let me know. And I was like, how about tomorrow? How about, how about this, this upcoming Saturday? And he brought me up and then I went back up again and again. I kept hitting him up like almost every episode. I was hitting him up to come to the floor. And I could tell that I was starting to overstep. And, um, and I would see Colin Quinn in the halls I think someone introduced me. To, yeah, someone introduced me to Colin because Colin started intru- introducing me to other people on SNL and having me do impressions for them, which was like, which is why I kept going because I was like, I feel like this is going to turn into something. And then I finally asked Colin if I could 
um, submit material because I knew a comedian who said that he wrote for Colin. And I said, is that true? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. I just if I use the joke, I pay him and I go, well, you know, I write for Howard. So could I send you some jokes? And he gave me the fax number to fax in. Um, and, uh, so I would fax in my jokes every Friday before a live show, I would have to fax in by 5 PM. And, uh, um, but I did that from October of 98 till May of 2000 and, uh, until his last time on the show. And, um, but def- the definition of success, um, you know, it's weird how many, uh, people are not happy with what they have. It's fucking crazy. Right. And there's always this feeling of like, fuck, what have I, like, I've done a lot of cool shit. What have I done recently? I haven't done anything cool recently. And that mm-hmm. is something that get hung up on all the time. And they just think, oh man, what the fuck? I, you know, it's, it's over because I haven't done anything recently. Meanwhile, there's always thousands of people behind you who want what you have. And you're looking uh, most people are looking at what other people have. I don't really do that. I, I'm just so um, shocked that things worked out to the level they have already. And it just seems like it just keeps rolling upwards, you know, like getting back on Howard Stern for the first time in 20 years I know, um, is really absurd. Um, so I don't know, man. I mean, I was really happy when you told me that news, I was really, really happy for you on that because I, it, it just as a journey, you know, as somebody that's, we don't have a, a lot in common in that regard. I'm not a, I don't perform for a living. I don't do anything, but my journey has taken a long time. It started when I was 18. I, that, that little bit of you and I running into each other at say New York and in Detroit and in all these other kind of places to me is part of this little journey of like, well, I get to see my, my friends randomly in on odd places around the world, which is very, very cool to me. Um, but when you told me that you got stern again, I was like, ah, oh, man, like for all of us battling through this and all of us going after it in our own version of making it, that to me is like, well, then there's that next, you just grabbed another level. You went back, you grabbed it. You, you were busy enough since you left him that, the, that you got back. It was amazing that you, that you've been able to get back. And it just felt really good for you. Cause I knew, just overall that that's going to start the next thing for you, right? It's going to start the next thing. So pretty, pretty cool stuff. And I, I got to think that you're still uh, feeling real good and pinch me about it. I, I would guess. <laughs> it's, it's surreal. It's, it's crazy. Especially when uh, people who I really respect and admire start texting me and saying, was that you? And, I, <laughs> and people who I really respect and admire and say, uh, uh, you know, flattering things like it must have been you because it was funny, and it's like, oh, right on, you know. And but it's interesting. Like the longer you do it, the more you become friends with you know so many other people. You start to become friends with people who are at all different levels of success um, mm. in the entertainment business. You become friends with people who have uh, won the game over and over and over again, who are the most famous, most successful people. You become friends with people who are, are wanting to get in the business and everything in between. And um, you start to be able to be uh, a witness to what it's like to have all the different um, uh, types of success. And you start to realize where, where uh, your satisfaction can lie. And I, I think it has a lot to do with your own security, mm-hmm. who you are. And because um, if you're insecure, you're worried about what everybody else is doing. 
And uh, well, that's what my my question about that because I know comedy is super super competitive, but also you guys seem to like I I've always heard about that front room or whatever, and I witnessed it for the first time at this place where the all you guys were sitting around kind of talking to each other and you're trading stories and you're doing things. Um, but like, is there that moment where you're like, Hey, did you hear this guy got that? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, you're that guy's funnier than him. Why didn't he get it? It's just funny to me because it would be the same with musicians or bands or indie bands or anyone that's trying to make it. It's like when one of your peers gets something huge, you're part of you is like, that's amazing. And then the other part of you is like, well, why not me? You know <laughs> I'm, what? Funnier. I'm funnier than him. <laughs> well, I got a couple different responses to that. The first is that, uh, I wanted to work in the music industry my whole life. I, I right. wanted to be in music because I love music. And I just thought, man, how great would it be to be working in an industry where you get to hang out with uh, your favorite artists? And um, and I I do that now as a comedian. And holy shit, would that have never happened if I was working in the music industry? Because every musician I know, most musicians I know, have said like kind of at the very least passive aggressive comments about other musicians that I'm also friends with. And I realize, man, if I was working in this business, it'd be like, Oh, I'm not, you know, that guy works with that guy. So fuck him. Um, but, uh, I learned really early on in the first, God, it must've been the first couple of years. Uh, I was at the comedy underground. I just started doing stand up. It's the early to mid nineties. And a bunch of comedians were talking shit about successful comedians that they didn't think should be successful. And one of the guys in that group that I started out with, I started out with uh, Josh Wolf, uh, Brody Stevens, who's passed, um, Joey Diaz. Um, Joey Diaz showed up like a year after us, uh, came up from Denver, I believe. And... Uh, was on the run from something in Denver. And, uh, <laughs> um, but I, I remember Josh Wolf who went on to be really successful with, uh, Chelsea lately and, and his own stuff now that's really killing it. Josh said, um, uh, Hey, listen, man, that guy sells tickets. Like, you know, who are any of us who can't sell tickets, who are trying to get stage time just to learn how to do stand-up comedy? Who are any of us to judge, someone who can sell tons of tickets every night. Right. To say like, what's funny and what's not funny. I mean, clearly we're not the experts on that. And I'm, I always think of that whenever I hear comedians um, and it's surprising who does it, but the comedians I hear sometimes on a podcast who will talk shit about people they think are not funny mm-hmm. or successful. And it's like, you know what, man, I, like you're, you're not Dave Chappelle. You're not David tell you're not, you know, like who is anybody to say what's funny and what's not funny? If somebody's selling tickets, then right. clearly they are funny because there are people who are paying money to show them that they agree with them. So, um, what do you say to the term and that everyone has? Everyone can be funny for five minutes. Um, I've definitely seen, uh, you know, like at open mics, there are people who will go and do an open mic for the first time and bring 20, 30 friends of theirs to, to support him. And then they'll have that support for that five minutes while they're on stage. And I'm laughing because I did that 30 years ago. I brought 30 friends to watch me do stand up for the first time. Never wanted to be a stand up comedian. And I fucking ate it. 
With 30 of my, that's how bad I was. That's not different than indie bands bringing 50 of their friends. I mean, if you've ever, you know, if you know any, any uh, musician friends of yours that played in indie bands and it's like a lot of clubs in the nineties and stuff like that were, it wasn't necessarily pay to play, but kind of like, it was sort of like, if you want to come in, you gotta, you gotta bring a hundred friends and you could be the worst band in the world, but you gotta get a hundred friends in there. You sound like Pearl Jam. So. You know what? It's funny. I, uh, I was going to share a story and I don't know if I'm out of turn for saying this, but Mike, uh, who plays guitar for Pearl Jam, was telling me um, his story about um, before he made it in Pearl Jam that he was in this band called Shadow. And um, their mutual friend, Duff McKagan, was like uh, a couple years earlier said, I'm going to L.A. to be a rock star. And he did. He went to fucking L.A. Yeah. to be yeah. a fucking rock star. So Mike's like, we need to go be rock stars. So him and his buddies pack up their shit and they, they say, we're moving. We're going to go be rock stars. Everyone's like, yay, you're going to be rock stars. And LA just crushed them. They just took it in the ass for a few minutes. <laughs> by the time they got to LA, LA was pay to play and you yeah. couldn't get into any of the clubs without paying up front. And then you had to go out and sell the tickets to recoup your money. And so it was a very demoralizing experience. And I'll never forget Mike saying that when he got back to Seattle, and I, I hope I'm not out of line for, for sharing this, but Mike said when he got back to Seattle, after telling everybody, hey, we're going to be rock stars, and then they had to go back home, he said, I became so depressed that I actually became a Republican. Uh, <laughs> and said he actually he started wearing penny loafers and became a Republican. And, uh, and then got a phone call at some point from – stone saying uh hey you, i don't know if you heard my singer passed away and i want to know if you want to get together and just write some music and they went to the attic of stone's parents house and wrote some music yeah and put this band together and that band just went <laughs> just took right um, and that's pearl jam for everyone uh, uh for you young listeners that don't know anything that doesn't rhyme with machine gun kelly it's pearl jam so there you go. Well, it was, it was uh, to begin with, and they changed. That's right. Now, did you um, uh, a couple more here for you? And I'll let you go. Um, where was the moment for you on this journey where that there was the one laugh or that one moment where you're like, "I got this, and I think I can make a living at this, and I mm -hmm. think I'm good." Like there was maybe that first phase of your version of making it, but you're like, "I think I'm good. I think well, I got this." Well, it's a little bit of a long-winded story, so I'll do this as quickly as possible. Um, so I ate it hard with no intention of wanting to be a stand-up comedian. I didn't want to do stand-up. I just was told my whole life that I was funny and I should I should do stand-up. So I was like, all right, I'm going to sign up for an open mic and, uh, and give it a shot. And I told a whole bunch of my friends, and 30 of my friends showed up at this comedy club in Tucson, Arizona, where I, where I was living at the time. That's where I spent my formative years. And I ate it hard. That wasn't the bad part. The bad part was getting off stage and watching open micer after open micer shit on me. And they didn't shit on me in a funny way. They shit on me like, man, that last guy sucked. Was that you? Dude, why are you here, man? You are not funny. You suck. Like it was straight up bullying is what it was. And, um, uh, I remember uh, I got the reason why I bombed is I had no idea <laughs> that you're supposed to prepare material. Right. 
I thought it because it looks like people just go up and just start talking. And I'm like, oh, right. shit, I can do that. And then when you get up on stage, it's like, holy fuck, man, these lights are so much brighter than I thought they were going to be. And the microphone was so much louder than I thought it was. And and it was just uh, the feeling of everybody staring at you going is the most intense pressure I had ever felt. And I just simply said, I can't do this. And my hands were shaking so bad, I couldn't even put the mic back in the stand. The MC comes on stage and he shares a quick little like, all right, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to see the rest of Craig's performance, come back to the nine o'clock show and he'll finish that set. And everybody <laughs> else that went up just fucking shit on me. And um, for three years, that became this black pit in the bottom of my stomach that I couldn't do in a professional setting what I had been told my whole life was the most natural part of my personality. And it haunted me at fucking anywhere I went with my, like I remember going to weddings and I would try to stand up and go, Hey, uh, I'd like to say a few words. Uh, cause I've known you two for a long time. And I just wanted to say, um, and someone in the back of the room would go, I can't do this. And I'd be like, who said that? Like, Oh, it fucking haunted me for three years. And then a radio DJ in Tucson, a guy named DC Collins. Uh, I brought in a band that I was managing to um, uh, promote some shows at his station. And he said, uh, I ended up taking over the interview and doing a bunch of voices. And he came up to me after the interview and said, dude, how many voices do you do? And I said, "Uh, I don't know. I've never counted, but a lot. And he goes, if I put you in this production room, can you record a bunch of voices for me? And just at the end of every voice, just say, you're listening to KLPX. And I said, sure. And he locked me in the room and I just talked to myself for an hour. And then he called me a week later, still living with my mom. I was like 22 years old, still living with my mom. And uh, he said, uh, hey, dude, what are you doing? And I go, well, I'm just hanging out at my mom's place. Uh, What's going on? And then I heard him introduce a song on the radio. And then... um, and then he played my voice. Doing, hmm. I think it was Sam Kinison. And I was like, was that on the air? And he goes, yeah. And I go, fuck, why didn't you tell me? I could have recorded that. Like, holy shit, that's crazy. And he goes, hold on, hold on. I want you to hear something. Hello, KLPX. Hey, man, what the? Was that Sam Kinison you just played? And he goes, no, it's my friend Craig. You want to talk to him? Hey, dude, that was funny, man. Wow. Holy shit, you sound just like him. And then he goes to the next call. Hello, KLPX. Yeah, uh, I have a question. I just heard the thing you just played with Sam Kinison. Didn't he die? And he's like, <laughs> yeah, he did. He died. But that was my friend Craig. I got him on the phone. You want to say hi to him? And he let me talk to all these listeners, all these callers. And he said, um, hey, man, you know, when I play a song on the radio and I get more than three calls about a song, that's a hit song. And every time I play one of your voices, I always get a few phone calls about it. And I just wanted to call and tell you that I don't know what you're planning on doing with your life, but I really feel like you were put on this planet to be a stand-up comedian. And I went, Oh dude, I tried that and it sucked. And I explained what happened. And he said, he goes, yeah, but you're so natural. He goes, you need to go back to the comedy club and do it again. And just before you go on stage, just say, I'm funny and I belong here. And I actually, <laughs> I actually did that. I went back to an open mic and uh, right before I went on stage, I was like, I'm funny. I'm funny. I'm funny. I'm funny. And 
And I went up on stage and dude, it was the easiest fucking thing I've ever done in my life. Mm. I couldn't believe how, how easy it was. And I, and I kept doing it, kept doing it. And then all of a sudden, I mean, it hit me literally that first night, there was a guy in the room filming a documentary about stand-up comedy. I think it was called open mic. And he captured, he captured that first time on stage of, of me. And, um, he put it into his documentary and, uh, all of a sudden it hits me like, holy shit, I'll bet I could do this for a living. And oh my God, I can get revenge on all those fucking assholes who made fun of me three years ago. And I started going at it with a vengeance, not only to figure out stand-up comedy, but to get revenge on anyone who reminds me of those fucking assholes from that first night when I started to do stand-up comedy, moved to Seattle, and it worked. Within three years, and actually within a year, I got banned from every major comedy club in the Pacific Northwest except for two. George Carlin heard about what I was doing. George Carlin became a mentor, uh, flew me to L.A. a couple times. Howard Stern put me on his show, and then it just started going from there. So uh, uh, that clicking of that first time, of realizing, holy shit, I just, I need to be confident in myself. And, uh, cause I know I'm capable of doing this. That was the moment. And, uh, it required the entire explanation. So forgive That's me. fine. That's fine. We got, I mean, it's a podcast life, so it's not like we're on a time limit. Uh, the, uh, I'm sure you got some gigs tonight though. Um, I love the Bellagio uh, in the background, by the way, with the, the fountain, anyone that oh, listening, yeah. you need, you need to watch this. Craig's got the best literally we have the, the Bellagio fountain going up and down behind him, which is amazing. The, uh, so what is your balance of new material versus like, have you ever thrown it all out and started over? I get scared to throw it all out. Uh, there, I, I actually end my shows with a piece that's just been kind of evolving over the years because there's so many mm. elements that get, um, uh, added to it, which is a piece that I've been writing called, uh, I think Gene Simmons is going to kill me. And um, it's just, there's been so many creases and so many nuances that continue to get added to the story Mm -hmm. that that I'm always closing out my shows with that. But new material is the most exhilarating uh, feeling of accomplishment when you go into clubs and you start talking about what's going on in your life today, which a lot of people have, You know, obviously for the last year, I've been talking about what the world has become with the pandemic. But uh, however you're fitting into today's uh, chaos and chaotic world is um, it's cool. It's it's a great feeling to go in and, and, and get laughs at new ideas because there's something that happens when you introduce an idea on stage in stand up and you get huge laughs that you kind of back up and you go. Yeah, like that is funny because and you start adding shit to it that you never thought of. It just starts developing arms and legs and and starts to uh, grow as a piece based on how people react to what you're doing. It's just there's just something It's very similar to hanging out with friends and telling friends a great story about something that happened to you. And then as they start laughing, you start going. Yeah, that is funny, man. Because like, who the fuck? Mm-hmm. You know, and it just grows and grows. So, who does uh, it best? Who does it best right now? Who does new material best? Um, the 
Well, new material is interesting because, I mean, there's always, you know, if you guys are working it out, you're working out one minute at a time or two minutes at a time and then adding to it from what I see. But well, who does it Who does it best right now? Who is the one flawlessly that can that you feel is walking up on that stage every time and just laying it down? No one comes close. In terms of developing new material, nobody comes close to David Tell. David Tell is – if everyone in comedy – is doing math. David Tell is the only person doing advanced calculus. <laughs> One that uh, in comedy loves watching him because he will, uh, when I'm in New York, I'll perform until usually about, I'll do four or five shows up until about midnight or 1230. And then I always like to jump over to watch Dave. Dave likes to go on around 1.30 in the morning or 1.45 a.m., and I like watching him every night when I'm in New York. And he is so bored with his own material that night after night after night, you see him reworking the set every single night. He's putting in different punchlines every night. And then I've seen him get annoyed with audience members who laugh too hard. Like it bothers him that they're enjoying it that much. <laughs> Fucking crazy. And all comedians who've, noticed it take notice in a way that they're inspired it's 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 not just inspiring it's it's intimidating because he just um cannot stand to do the same material which is fucking crazy because we're all doing that we're all working mm. night after night after night on um, whatever we're working on we're just adding you know like, you know, the Gene Simmons thing I'm telling you about is something I only do when I headline around the country at the end of my show. But when I'm in New York, I'm constantly trying to figure out how to develop newer ideas. And it's crazy to watch Attell do his thing. I also like watching Chappelle because Chappelle is just the guy that's changing and elevating the entire art form. He's just uh, truly... Um, uh, someone who is um, changed the game in a way that nobody thought was possible. He's just, he's a philosopher. He's brilliant. He's a brilliant human being. Um, and, um, but for me, I'm still so in love with comedy that I am grateful that I get to see all these guys yeah. for free whenever I want to. That's amazing to me. So final question for you before I let you go and do some sets tonight. Has Craig Gass made it? I've made it in that I haven't had a real job in over 22 years now. Um, that is success to me that I haven't had to um, have a supervisor or a boss and that I've been living uh, comfortably. I haven't been uh, rich, but I've been, I haven't worried about uh, paying my bills. And that's a great feeling. And I'm still self-conscious of it. Every time I pay my bills, I'm still self-conscious of it. Every time I pay for dinner, um, I just, I cannot believe that this is happening because I'm doing something that I love because I have figured out how to make money doing something that I am the biggest fan of. So yes, I believe I have succeeded. The only thing that's left uh, for me to accomplish is stuff that's 
kind of end game kind of success. Like one night of doing the kind of sales that a uh, Bill Burr or a Chappelle can do in one night is kind of, um, you know, end game, like set for life in one night mm-hmm. you know, right. kind of money. So, so uh, that's the only thing that's left is getting to a level of success where you don't ever have to worry about anything anymore uh, for, you know, in terms of your bills. So, but so a, lot have of- a lot of fun, you're going to have a lot of fun working through that to get to that. That's the best. Part. That's a hundred percent. That's what this whole thing up to now has been. Right. I will always remember like one of the first conversations I had with George Carlin. And I know it sounds like terrible name dropping, but that's more of an insecurity on, on uh, drop as many names as you want. This is a show about the journey about making it. So well, there's people that have helped along the way. So don't be afraid to drop them. In there. The insecurity of a listener who says, Oh yeah, nice name dropping when it's like, well, these are the people that uh, have been in my life helping me, but, uh, so it's it's more of a reflection of uh, an audience's members' um, issues than mine. But um, the first conversation I ever had with George when he offered to help me out in my career, which I never took him up on. All I wanted was a friendship. Obviously, I never took him up on because mm-hmm. I'm still having to explain to people like, oh, yeah, I'm a <laughs> but uh, I'll never forget. Him asking me the first question he ever asked me on the phone was, uh, "How do you like? It? How do you like doing this thing? Are you okay? You like, do you enjoy it?" And I said, "I just, um, yeah, man, like it's crazy. I'm so in love with this, and you know, I have goals, but it's not about the goals. It's it's about." And he finished my sentence and said, "It's about the journey." And I said, "Exactly. It's about the journey. It's about the journey that you're on." And I, I cannot believe that I've been able to do what I've been able to do. And I always say that my favorite part of the last 22 years um, of making money, uh, the 20, uh, what's it been, like 29 years of doing stand-up comedy uh, in total has been the endless conversations with other comedians analyzing mm-hmm. stand-up, the business, the weird people, the bad people, the good people and everything in between just those endless conversations where I get to hang out all night long with my friends who are brilliant comedians analyzing this thing that we all get to do and not having to set an alarm to get up early in the morning, unless I have to go out and promote a show. But It's great stuff, man. I, uh, I'm really happy for you. I'm really happy for, for this next thing that's about to start for you. Out of all these things, this journey that you've taken so far, you're back on Stern. It's going to open up all these doors. We've this is a something I thought I'd never say in my life. Uh, we've come a long way since we first met backstage at a New Kids on the Block show <laughs> in Vancouver. Something that anyone who knew me in the '80s would be like, "You were backstage at a New Kids on the Block show." What New Kids on the Block with Backstreet Boys? Yeah, in. Uh, in uh, Vancouver is where it all happened. And then from there, uh, you were gracious enough to return uh, my, my messages about maybe doing some shows in Canada and we had some fun and, and uh, and here we are on a show together still and um, running into each other around this fine uh, planet of ours. So lots of fun. That's Craig gas. Tell me, tell them, tell everyone where they can find you online, what you're up to, where they can find you performing. You got to go check out Craig. Very, very, very funny guy. You can just go to getgas.com. It's getgas with two S's.com. That'll take you to all the links for all the social media stuff and the tour dates and everything. And I'm not going to tour as much for the near future. I'm only going to do Hawaii in February. 
Um, I think there might be some shows in March, but I'm just going to concentrate on doing funny stuff on Howard's show. And, um, uh, but getgas.com is where all the info is. And by the way, I want to point out when I said that the only time I have to set an alarm is to get up and promote my shows. It's the only time in my life that an alarm goes off and I'm ready to go. I'm excited about getting out of bed and going out and promoting my gigs. I've never had an alarm go off in my life up until I started doing stand-up comedy that gave me that same, that I didn't immediately resist. It's crazy. Again, it goes back to just loving what you do. And anyone who's making money doing what they love has succeeded. Whatever, like, well, I still need to do this. I still need to do that. I think is a character defect. I I think that anyone who's making, in my opinion, but then again, I'm I'm happy. So, well, I'm happy for you, man, and uh, very happy that you came on today. So, thank you so much. Great to see you again. Uh, I'll be in Vegas soon. Maybe we'll run into each other. I started another tour down there in a couple of weeks, so I'll uh, right. I'll let you know, man. That, my friends, is the very very excellent Craig Gas, uh, great friend of mine, awesome dude. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in this week to the Brenton on Tour podcast, uh, all about making it. That guy to me has made it. Uh, where are you? Are you making it? Keep tuning in. Lots of stuff ahead. Lots of great shows ahead. That's the Brenton on Tour podcast for another day. Thank you very much, everybody. We will see you next week. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.